what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. I made a huge connection in my life where my schedule was so regimented as a kid, with my mom being the dance teacher and stuff. Jessie Golden is a devoted mother, holistic health practitioner, Hatha yoga teacher, model, founder, and CEO of the gorgeous skin and body care line, The Golden Secrets. A portion of proceeds of The Golden Secrets goes towards one of five different charities based on current events and world need. And they use 100% natural, plant-based, non-GMO, sustainable, and fair trade ingredients. She's also the author of The Golden Secrets to Optimal Health, a guide in inner and outer wellness, which you will literally want to inhale once you've seen what a shining example of health she is, whether you find her on Instagram, her YouTube show, or her podcast. Throughout many life challenges, including continuing to thrive with the debilitating disease rheumatoid arthritis, she has harnessed many alternative natural modalities that have helped her along the way. I know Jessie personally now for years, I think we originally met in like a modeling context, but now I just don't even know. <laughs> it's been um, it's been fun to uh, watch her just continue to build on her knowledge and herself and her community. Um, so we're honored to have her here today. Hi, Jessie. Thank you so much, ladies. That was so sweet. And it's been an honor, Asha, to watch you grow into who you are and be a mother, motherhood. <laughs> uh. The biggest, best, crazy thing. <laughs> One of the things I've loved, uh, you kind of weave your youth story into some of your Instagram posts and different things. Um, and I've loved kind of, especially like the little pictures that you've posted about um, growing up as a dancer. And I know, so your, your mom um, had a dance studio, right? Yeah. So my mom had a dance studio for 42 years. I tell people I literally grew up in the dance studio, like she tells me stories of how, you know, I was literally in the little like rocking chair in the dance studio, just watching before I could even walk. And I, I loved it, but I also, you know, and I learned a lot of talk about foundational things. A lot of who I am came from the dance studio, the discipline, the hard work, the dedication, like all of that, like was rooted into me. But just as you said in my in my intro, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which I'm sure we'll get into. And that's when I started being a little bit more gentle with myself, because up to that point, I was 29 when I got diagnosed. I had this very rigid, like dancer um, attitude and dancers are tough. You know, they're they're athletes and, you know, they're really taught to ignore your body's signals and just keep going forward. And then on a more um, spiritual side, it was also really tough because I grew up in a dance studio where there was a mirror the size of the entire room. And so I got to judge myself, you know, 24 hours a day. So my inner dialogue became very toxic. Um, and then of course my dance teachers were judging me. My mom was judging me. There was a lot of judgment to reach this like epitome of perfection that I 
finally realized didn't actually exist. Um, and then when I actually went into modeling, where when I when I met Asha, you know, some people would say, "Isn't modeling so hard?" I was like, "This is a piece of cake. Like, this is a piece of cake in comparison to ballet." Because ballet, I took more personal because it was something that you could work on and strive for. And if somebody didn't like my look, they didn't like my look. Like, there was nothing I could do. Like, you know, this is what I look like. So, I took it a lot more personal um, when my ability. Uh, had something to do with it, you know. I can totally relate to that, Um, that kind of contrast of, I mean, but ballet especially is such a beautiful form of expression. And I, you know, as a young girl, totally felt that um, freedom in it, in that I could express myself. I thought it was beautiful and intricate and precise to be a good ballerina. But that huge wall mirror and everything, like, you're lined up with a bunch of other girls and you're all supposed to be doing the same thing, even though you're also different, you know, um, that it is kind of that, uh, has positives, but also this kind of, uh, other side to it. There's a lot of space for internal and external pressure to kind of reign supreme if you let it. And I, I feel like I remember like the first recital that I did where instead of the mirror, there was just audience, you know, and realizing it's how different it is, you know, that it's, I actually found it more freeing to be in front of a audience than in front of a mirror where all you saw is yourself. hundred percent. I always say I did my best performances by myself in the studio. Like I was so hard on myself. This is something that I probably will always work on my entire life is I'm just very hard on myself. Nothing's ever good enough. It's my driving force, but it's also my Achilles tendon. Um, but you know, my mom would close the studio every night. So I would be stuck there late and I would end up getting the dance floor, uh, to myself. And I would do some of the most amazing things in that room. And it was for me, like, I didn't care if anybody saw me, it was just for myself, you know? That's amazing. Were you, I mean, because you were exposed to it as like a baby, were you just always dancing for as long as you could remember? Or do you remember like the point that you, you actually started? No, I don't remember starting. It was just like, you know, it was just the way that my life was, you know, my, and it was me, my mom and my sister. My mom was a single mother. Uh, so it was a very feminine environment and very just dancery. Everything was dance, you know? Totally. Is your, is your sister older or younger? She's five years older. Older. Okay. How was that dynamic growing up? You know what? We didn't have a good relationship. Uh, I think there was a lot of factors that go into it, but I, I've always kind of tried to like take that into consideration as being a mom. I don't think my mom had a lot of the tools on how to handle, uh, having another child and long story short, when my mom got pregnant with me, they decided to move into like a new, um, area. So they moved into a new house, which was like a bigger, bigger, better house. But my sister also lost all her friends and our cousins and our community. And she associated that with this baby in mommy's belly. So I really feel like she just didn't like me from the beginning. (laughs) She kind of had this, you know, love-hate relationship. um, And because she was five years older, you know, there was kind of a big gap. So um, we were never really that close. In, In some weird ways, I kind of felt like, an only child a lot of times. 
Was it um, same dad or, or different? So father? same dad. Yeah. And then same parents. And then my dad actually remarried. So I also have two uh, younger brothers that are okay. Yeah. Uh, gosh, 23 and 28. Okay. Yeah. I, I had no idea that your mom was, you know, a single mother. Um, like you had been for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Something I didn't want to do because yeah. I, knew, I knew how hard it was, you know. That life is funny. It just catches you, right? Like all all the plans that you end up making go out the window. Yeah. And I think I think that's a good point to make. I think I hung on to my um, son's father a lot longer than I should have because I didn't want to be the stereotypical single mom and and you know, because I had gotten pregnant kind of, it was unexpectedly to say the least. And I didn't want everyone to be like, I told you so. And so I really made it, I really hung in there a lot longer than I probably should have. Um, and then afterwards I was determined to be the best single mom and to not have all these stigmas that are associated with it. And that, you know, my my mom was an amazing mother, but, you know, she didn't have a lot of the tools back in this, like the early 80s, you know, things were totally different. And um, there was a lot of drama and, and chaos. And she probably told me too much information. A lot of times I felt like the mother in the household. But I was able to not do that with my son. So I think, you know, if you're able to take those experiences and learn from it, then, you know, it can become a positive thing. Well, I already feel like that's kind of a theme in your life, like having these um, adversities, which obviously, you know, if we could choose, sometimes we're like, no, you know, I'd rather not have that experience or this one. But, you know, once you've been through it, being able to turn it around and, and really using it as a light and a guiding force in your life, like becoming such a wonderful you know, single mother for a long time for your son and also, you know, some of your, your health journey. I know you've shared a lot of it, um, you know, in your various channels, but, um, but yeah, did before, so you, the rheumatoid arthritis you said was when you were 29. Yeah. So I was already a mom. And just to like touch on what you just said, I think that is a, a guiding theme, like in my life. And I think that anybody could take that into, um, into their life. Like, I think sometimes people think that I don't have adversity because I share a lot of happy posts and I'm genuinely an authentic, happy person. Um, it's not that I don't have struggles and it's not, you guys, we all have struggles, but it's how you choose to, you know, use them. You can become the victim or you can, you know, use it to like, I always say, um, every challenge is an opportunity to create more light in your life. So it's like, oh my gosh, here's this really unfortunate circumstance, but can I take everything that I've learned thus far and actually put it into action? And it's an, it's an amazing thing when you're able to do that, life does get easier. The challenges keep coming, but we just become kind of a better student with these challenges and we know how to handle them. You took the words right out of my mouth because I was going to say one of the recurring themes with a lot of our wonderful guests at Bridget is just this ability, like you said, everyone has adversity. Everybody has these very intricate stories and pasts that make them into the success story they are today. And I think one of the common threads is just that, that ability to 
take every single hardship or trauma or setback and use it as a catalyst for either change or growth or whatever. And like, that's really where the magic always ends up happening. It's like, okay, I fell flat on my face. What do I do now? And those are usually the women and the people we find are the happiest and most successful. And it has zero to do with the amount of adversity they've faced and everything to do with what they do next. 100%. And I find I'm always attracted to those people and, 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 and inspired by those people, you know, and you can kind of, you can kind of tell who they are. They kind of have this like aura about them, like no matter what, you know, they're just going to be okay. And they're going to make the best of it. As a, as a child growing up with a dancer mother, did you always have an interest in like health and, you know, all of the different modalities that you do to support health? Did you, did you have an early interest in that or did that kind of sprout based on the arthritis diagnosis and everything? It's kind of interesting. So I grew up in Chicago and the Midwest in the eighties, it was like meat and potatoes and like fast food and everyone smoked in the house and drank a lot. Like it was not a very healthy environment. Um, I actually got sick. Uh, I got food poisoning from eating meat that was not cooked. One of the fads in Chicago in the 80s was uh, places where you would go pick out your own meat and cook them on these huge grills. And it was like a family thing. And I was cooking my own meat and I didn't cook it right. And I dreamt of like cows and I got sick. It was like the first time I had like thrown up in my life. And I, it was the first time I had made the connection that I was eating an animal, as crazy as that sounds. Um, because, you know, when you're just raised in an environment, you know, a lot of kids, like we're not living on a farm, we're not killing our animals, we're not, you get your food out of the refrigerator and you don't really associate that. So I actually became like obsessed with PETA and animal rights and was like creating arguments with everybody at the dinner table about trying to turn them vegetarian and I mean, I just, I went through so many very interesting phases that started really young. And I think one of the best things that my mom did is she allowed me to go through these crazy phases. Like that doesn't seem like a crazy phase right now, but literally my grandma said, if you don't eat meat, you're going to die when I was 11 years old. Like that's how unusual it was to just want to not eat animals anymore, you know, in 88. But uh, my mom allowed me to like kind of go through these phases and she would make like an extra meal for me. We had to go to a special grocery store to get like soy. I was like eating soy and all that stuff. I do want to preface I'm not a vegetarian anymore, but I think that was the first time that I actually started being interested in health and the association. And looking back, I think that I was always drawn. I was always drawn to like witchery kind of things. Like somebody gave me like a, you know, like tarot cards or somebody gave me like sage or incense. And um, I got my first yoga book when I was like 17. And it just like my mind just blew up. Like I was just like craving to make sense of what was going on in my world. (laughs) Um, I love that it sounds like your mom was very supportive in whatever way she could show up for you, like helping you go to the grocery store and cooking the extra meals. I'm super interested to hear where the sense of spirituality and nature come into play because I know and I've read that 
as a young child, you were already really interested in mother nature and absorbing all of that. So um, where do you think that that spirituality and that interest and, you know, learning alternative modalities and everything, where does that come from? Well, again, I think that's, I think it's innate. I think all kids are kind of like in touch with that side. And then as we, you know, realize that we're humans and we're living this life and we kind of have to get grounded and, and into society and we kind of disconnect. But again, my mom was very open. Like I would kind of talk to spirits, you know, stuff like that. And she would be like, that's great, honey. Or I would be like, I'm, you know, I would have astral projection dreams every night. And I would tell her about, I was dreaming or, you know, flying with Big Bird. That was my, he was my like spirit guide, so to speak at that age. Um, But she never said, that's crazy. What are you talking about? It was like, she encouraged this kind of weird behavior where, Looking back, I think, my gosh, if my son did half of the things that I did, I would be like, maybe we should go talk to somebody, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But I realized that I was just, I was just always very spiritual. And my practice has been to be more human, as weird as that sounds. Like, I'm so happy in, like, the forest, living like a fairy in, like, fairy realms. Like, I can do that all day long. My work, I'm not going to, like, change anyone's life doing that, though. My work is how can I utilize this life to the best of my ability? And I have to, you know, live this life and take meetings and be a functioning human and and all that kind of stuff. But, um, I think that I've always, I've always been really spiritual and, and tapping into nature has been like one of my favorite, it's not even favorite. It's like, I'm, I have to, like, I have to spend time in nature just to like balance out everything that's going on. I was just going to ask about the yoga book when you were 17 and how that affected you. You said it blew your mind. And I'm, I I think we're both curious to know how and, and how it changed your perspective at that time. Yeah. I still have the book, by the way. It's like the best. Um, it's interesting because I was suffering from, from some anxiety. I think I was drinking too much coffee, to be honest with you. I was in high school. We would drink a lot of coffee. Like in high school, we would go to coffee shops. That's what we did. And I was experiencing a lot of anxiety. And I first was blown away by like the breathing technique, the pranayama. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I just like dove in. And then just the whole practice, everything, like there's eight limbs to yoga. The most common one that we practice here is asana, like the actual poses. But there's so many other aspects of yoga that I was just blown away by. And then I was already into being vegetarian and that just kind of they, you know, that whole concept kind of was like, oh my gosh, these are my people. (laughs) They're vegetarian too. They believe, they actually believe that the suffering and pain that the animal goes through, like you digest that. And I was like, yes, this is what I've been trying to tell everyone. (laughs) Um, so, you know, in that book, even, even more, like I, I talked about this recently, even on my Instagram, but they're like all the different Kriyas, like the abdominal churning, and like the nostril, um, you know, uh, uh, nasal cleansing and all these other things that we don't hear about a lot. But 
And then of course, because I was a ballerina and I know Asha is very similar to this, I could already do all the poses. So it wasn't about the poses for me. Like I would look at the pictures and I would just do it because I've already been training for 17 years. Like I can do the poses. It was everything else. It was the breath. It was coming to the mat and listening to your body. I mean, yoga was the first time that any teacher had ever said, if you're tired, go to child's pose. I was like, what? Like in ballet, it's like, I don't care if you're tired, do 20 more. Like, you want to look at the clock? We're going to do it again. You know, it was like, it blew my mind. Like, wow, I'm actually supposed to listen to that voice. That's like, you might die right now. (laughs) So everything about yoga from that point on up until now, you know, has been my saving grace. I tell people yoga has saved my life more times than I can count. It's like my safety zone. <laughs> and I I just like love picturing you, you know, finding yoga. And, and as a dancer too, I can completely relate to that. Like uh, the, uh, you know, I went to my first class, I think it was like Brian Kess power yoga in Santa yeah. Monica. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it was my first class. I was going with this girl from UCLA that was like a professional figure skater. And she's like, I'm doing yoga to try to like, just get healthier and have a little more perspective. She's like, come with me. So we went and I just remember the first couple classes, I was like, there's no mirror in here. Like how, how does anyone know they're doing it right? <laughs> you know, like how does anyone have know their, their form? Like they're saying, watch your form and do all these things. I'm like, how am I supposed to tell? I don't have a mirror. You know, I get goosebumps. Asha. It's like exactly the same thing. It's so interesting because it's an introspective work, which is, is like complete opposite. It's so- like close. I encourage you to close your eyes, like match your breath to your movement. And I was like, what is that? Bre- like breathing while I do these things? Because pretty much in ballet, when I'm doing hard stuff, I'm holding my breath. <laughs> no, bre- breath was never talked about. Nothing. It was just suck it in and keep it there. Yeah. <laughs> When most people, it's so interesting too, because I mean, obviously I work in healthcare, but like most people do not breathe properly. And I don't know where or how or why we've conditioned ourselves as a society to completely forget how to do the one basic thing that we're supposed to know how to do subconsciously. Literally, we do all the time. It's voluntary and involuntary. So everyone's, it's interesting. I, I, I don't remember, I might have even mentioned this in my book. It's like, now it's not becoming as common, but it's okay if someone says, oh, I'm going to go outside and take a smoke break. And they're actually doing pranayama yoga. When you take a cigarette and you retain the breath and then you slowly exhale. But if you were to say, I'm going to go outside and take a couple deep breaths, people would look at you like you're crazy, <laughs> you know, or like, what's wrong? You know, but if you actually just simulated like you were going to smoke, you would get a little pranayama in there and some oxygen to your body. I feel like you just have so many wonderful practices that you've just built into your life that you share with people, whether it's um, the way you move your body, the way you take care of your skin, obviously all the beautiful like products you've developed. How early did you start kind of creating practice just of, of little things that you do to care for yourself? I mean, I think that started really young again with my mom. You know, my mom was was a, a great example of someone who really took care of herself. She She's a Libra and she's like ruled by Venus. So she's like 
just this goddess walking all the time. Like I have to do my five step skincare thing. And I just like would watch her as a kid, you know, she never said anything bad about herself. She never said anything bad about her weight or the way she looked, which was, you know, looking back was like a really great example, you know? So I think it started young. Like I loved having fun doing these little, you know, what I called kind of girly things back then. And, and of course, being a dancer, it's like you have to do your makeup and you're, you're often with other women. And it's like a very communal thing. Like you braid each other's hair and you do each other's makeup. And it's, it's this whole kind of tribal thing. So I think it started, it started probably back then. And then as I became a mother, I realized the value of these self-love practices and how when I don't have this abundance of time to myself, how important they are and how just five minutes of a little gua sha can like bring life back to me and like make me a better mom. And, and, uh, and then when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, obviously it, it accelerated even more because without my health, I don't have anything and I'm no good to anybody, especially my son. So through that and through being a mother, I really learned the value of self-love. And, and I don't think I had self-love before that. You know, it's like, okay, I have this human being who is relying on me. Like if I don't have love for myself, then, you know, what's, what's the point? And I have to have love for myself to heal myself. And one of my favorite ways to do that is through these little rituals of taking care of myself, whether it's how I make my coffee in the morning or, you know, putting music on or, you know, like the gua sha or the sauna. I mean, I do a million things a day, these little mini breaks that are just like feed my soul and, and help me function at my highest. <laughs> and it's, it, sometimes I feel like those breaks can feel like, you know, like, oh, like that self-care is selfish, you know, but even just taking that, that little break, I feel like it's another amazing way to just check in and make sure you're being present, you know, because when you're doing all of those things, you can't like kind of mindlessly, you know, completely tune out when you're doing your gua sha or whatever it is, like you're, you're. You can, you definitely can, but I encourage women like I didn't know that I was going to end up owning a skincare line. I always say it's an accidental business. But I remember when I did decide, okay, I guess I'm going to do this. I had to make it deeper. Like I always say behind the skin. So I always encourage women, like take the the, the thing that you're going to do already. You're already going to wash your face. You're going to put a mask on. You're going to do, you, you know, put the moisturizer on. You're going to do all these steps. Make it a mindful practice. Bring mindfulness into it say some positive affirmations, look at yourself in the mirror, say some beautiful things to yourself, like take that moment to practice those self-love rituals. And that's, that was the practice for me. I mean, that's kind of how the whole business started is I had this little bottle of essential oil that I made since high school and everybody kind of had this scent like that was like, oh, that's Jesse. You know, where, where did you get that? What is that? And I was like, oh, it's just the oil I made. You know, it's not a big deal. And I didn't actually want to share it with anybody. I was like, this is my scent. Like, I don't want to give it to give it to anybody. And then I realized, gosh, for like at that point, I've been like 15, 20 years. Like, I had this little bottle in my purse, and 
throughout the day, I would take it out and it was a moment for me to tune in with myself and check in with myself and see where I was at. And then on top of it, you know, it was essential oils. Like back then, still some people are still using toxic perfumes, but that's a whole nother story. But back then I just was like, essential oils weren't as common. They were more like the hippies that used it. Um, but I also noticed that the effects of the essential oils would just kind of help bring me clarity and calm me down. And I also noticed people around me seemed to be better. And I was like, this is like, this is like something really special. I think, I think I should share this with the world. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, how it started, you know, it was like, well, my whole, my whole passion is to share these golden secrets. Cause I had had a blog up to that point for a couple of years which was just tools that worked for me, whether it was in parenthood or spirituality or yoga or beauty or whatever it was. And this was one of my favorite tools. So I was like, I have to share it. So was the golden secrets before or after your rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis? So that's kind of what sparked the whole thing. So I was, um, so when I got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, I I, I got sick really quick. It came on really quick. I think looking back, I went undiagnosed for a long time because I always, I was kind of used to just not feeling great, like as a dancer and like as a single mom and I was breastfeeding for four years, I was always like just tired and I always had an excuse of why I just didn't feel great. And then when I finally got diagnosed, I spiraled and basically didn't walk for like a year of my life. I was 90 pounds. I was really bad. When I was able to recover from that, um, that's when all the yoga companies just started to come to birth. And I hit it just at the right time. I had just gotten my yoga certification and I stood out because people already knew me as a model, but now I was actually a certified yoga teacher. And these companies were looking for yoga girls. And a lot of people are like, yeah, I've done yoga. <laughs> I'm like, never, you know, and so because I was a teacher, it was just an easy way for me to say, I've actually done yoga, you know, for a long time. So I was able to work with all these yoga companies. And then I ended up being able to shoot the cover of New York times and they shot all these athletes and they chose to use yoga as the cover, which was me. And I was shocked. Like we didn't know that it was going to be and then at the time there was Facebook and I was getting all these messages of people saying, how did you do it? Like they had seen me not being able to walk and like going through this horrible illness. Rheumatoid arthritis at that point was associated as like an old person's disease. Like I was definitely not the face of rheumatoid arthritis. And I could not respond to everybody's messages, emails, this and that. And I was like, I have to write a blog post. Like I just have to start sharing like what I'm eating, what I'm doing, what I did. Da, da, da. So I started the blog and I simultaneously started writing my book. It was like, I just had all this information inside of me that I felt like um, I had to get out. And I felt like I didn't go through this for, for nothing. Like I can share this with other people and hopefully help, you know, as many people as I can. So the blog came, that's when the blog came. I mean, I can actually really relate to this because I am 31 and this year I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis, which is in the same family as rheumatoid arthritis. And 
it's not a sad story, but I also feel like at this age, you don't suspect that you're going to be going through something like this. And it did. It shook me because in all other areas of my life, like health and wellness is a very important thing. And I mean, you as a dancer and always being hyper aware of your body and, you know, what you're doing, how did you go through that diagnosis mentally? Like, can you walk us through sort of like what started happening? What sort of tipped you off that you needed to be worked up for anything? And then how you got yourself through it mentally? Yeah. It was so humbling. I will say that. It is my greatest teacher and it humbles me every single day still. Um, up until that point, I really thought I was bulletproof. And I had that mentality of when a problem comes at me, I'm just going to go at it even harder. And you can't do that with chronic disease <laughs> because you'll just get worse. You actually have to like stop what you're doing and listen to what it's trying to like tell you or teach you. And the first, the first ego check was I was actually getting my yoga certification when I got diagnosed and it came on so quick. I was in a four month training program at yoga works. I had just met my peers. I got diagnosed and it felt like the next day I couldn't walk. Like I was just like the tin man. Like I was like, uh, but I had walked into this teacher training with my ego going, I already know all of this. I've been studying since I was 18. Just give me my stamp of approval so I could say I'm a yoga teacher. And then the universe had another idea. They're like, guess what? We're going to shut your body down, which is what you've relied on your entire life. And then we're going to actually make you sit on the sidelines and watch all your peers practice. And <laughs> you're not going to be able to practice. And you're going to have to learn how to sit still with yourself and your thoughts and learn all the other limbs of yoga. So I literally had to talk to my teachers and ask them if I could maintain. And they said, of course, you can stay in the class, you know, as long as you're there. You, and I couldn't physically do a lot of the asana practice. So a lot of my peers never even saw me practice yoga. I spent a lot of the time just sitting there watching the classes that were the asana part. Um, but it was the first time in my life that I was really forced to listen to what was going on inside of my body. And I can't reiterate enough, but my entire life, I expressed who I was. I transmuted pain, energy, every single thing that I was going through, through dance and movement. That's how I dealt with everything in my life. And now I couldn't move. And I was like, what do I do? Like, this is the, this is crazy. So I really dove into my yoga practice and that's when I started also noticing that my inner thoughts were very toxic and I was like judging myself a lot. So bringing mindfulness and um, making better agreements with myself. It's the first time in my life I had to ask for help from my community and my friends. That's one of the hardest things for me to do. Um, so there was so many lessons in that whole, in that whole process. And, and to talk about the actual diagnosis, I went from doctor to doctor to doctor and they would look at me and say, oh, you're fine. You know, it was kind of like, oh, you know, 
you're fine. And I'm like, no, I don't, something's wrong. I don't feel right. And I went to all different doctors. I went to Ayurvedic doctor, I went to homeopathic doctor, I went to holistic doctor, I went to regular doctor. And I was chasing my son in the park one day. I thought I tore my Achilles tendon. Um, that's what it felt like. And I ended up having to go to the hospital, the emergency room. And the lady that was taking care of me looked at my hands, which were kind of black and blue. The knuckles were a little black and blue. And she, her mom had rheumatoid arthritis. And she said, I'm going to send you to a rheumatologist. And I'm like, what? I had never even, like, as, <laughs> I'd never even heard that word. Like, that didn't make, that wasn't in my realm. Like, what? Um, so sure enough, I got some blood work and uh, I tested positive for the RA factor. And then that's kind of when my whole journey began with that at 29. Did they have you, um, you know, once you got that diagnosis, was there any like medication or like treatments that you like had to start beginning on a regimen? Yeah. So like they normally in conventional medicine, they normally like to treat it aggressively in the beginning because they feel like there's a better chance to get into remission. So I was like, I, you know, at that point I had never, I want to preface it was such a pendulum swing for me because I didn't even take Tylenol. I gave birth at home naturally. I was like very much a hippie. You know, I never took like prescriptions or, you know, I was, you know, it's totally different. And they were like, okay, we want to put you on methotrexate, which is basically chemo, you know, we want to put you on methotrexate and Humira. And I did all the things I said, okay, you know, in the back of my head, I was like, Mm, I don't know if this is going to work. Like I, I just, I would, but I, I was like, in order to get my family support, I think I have to try this at least. And then if it doesn't work, I could say, at least I tried guys. Now let me try, you know, all these other modalities and, and get your support. So it didn't work. I got all the side effects. The methotrexate was really hard. I started bleeding actually for, I bled for 15 days straight. And this was kind of, this. it's a side effect listed as methotrexate. My period had been regular my entire life. So I knew that this was a side effect of the drug. And this was a big wake up call for me, um, just with how chronic disease is taken care of in general in allopathic medicine, is my doctor said, let's get you on some birth control to regulate your cycle. That was his, you know, uh, suggestion. And I was like, but this is a listed side effect. Like this is, it's, it's not my psych, my cycle's not the issue. Like, so, um, I can't remember how much time I actually gave it, but I did give it a good time. And then, um, shortly after that, I had found, uh, this woman by the name of Mina Dobik, who was a macrobiotic counselor. And, I basically dedicated my life to trying every single thing natural. Like I had a chef, I said, I spent my life savings. I, you know, to help me make all the food that was needed through this macrobiotic diet. Cause my hands weren't working well at the time and I could hardly walk. So, uh, my entire life was regimen. I had like a shiatsu guy. I had every single guy, you know, and I was just getting out of this yoga teacher training. So I had 40, classmates and every single one of them had a guy, <laughs> you know, they were like, I got a guy that can heal you. Or I got a guy. So I had people coming in left and right and I was trying everything. And long story short, I think with chronic disease, you have to be open to 
natural modalities and you have to look at the core of everything. You have to look at, um, you know, gut health and you have to look at like mold exposure and then you have to dive deep into like spirituality and like, where did you make certain connections in your life? Like I made a huge connection in my life where my schedule was so regimen as a kid with my mom being the dance teacher and stuff that the only time that I got to be home and just watch cartoons and eat in bed was when I was sick. So I played sick a lot. And so did I maybe like make this weird connection with like being sick so that I can rest, so I can have an excuse to rest because I'm not val valid enough to just say I need a rest. I need to be sick to have this. So there's been a lot of work, you know, that I've done. Um, and I'm still doing, I tell people that I'm thriving with rheumatoid arthritis um, and I'm doing a lot better than most. I'm not on any medication. Um, I have in the last several years though, had to go back. And every time I've gone back to um, medicine, like TNF blockers, which is like the only type of medicine that help prevent the actual uh, like deformation of joints and stuff. I end up getting all the side effects or I end up getting bladder infection and then you have to go on. It's like this whole spiral. So for me, my joints are a little damaged, <laughs> but my spirit is healthy. I feel good. Um, it's interesting because like all my markers and everything are always perfect, you know, so I'm this very unusual case. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting and we don't have to dive too far into this, but um, in practicing medicine, one of like my huge foundational beliefs in the way that, um, the way that my partner and I practice medicine is that in, at least in the United States, everything is so population based. So there are women like you and like me who will, you know, you'll go and have lab work done and like nine times out of 10, everything looks normal. And they're like, well, there's nothing wrong with you. And you're like, but wait, what is my baseline? Like, what do I look like when there's nothing going on in my body? And that's the question that they can't answer because we, you know, unfortunately have to work within this parameter of this is what 99% of the population looks like when everyone's truly very, very different. And unhealthy. Yeah. <laughs> the baseline is pretty unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day they'll be able to bring the guidelines down toward, you know, a healthier population. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think though, uh, like to summarize that whole thing, like, you know, innately if something is going on and I know like Asha's had health issues, you've had health issues, like, you know. And so if there's something like inside of you going, something's not right, like, don't ignore that. Even if your markers are okay, you know? I'd love to kind of jump back in time a little bit um, and talk about like when you started modeling and then um, in your, your pregnancy and stuff and just that kind of like that time of life a little. Yeah. So I think a lot of people find it interesting, but I hated modeling. <laughs> I really hated it. Um, uh, I moved to... Florida when I was 18. I actually went to Florida. This is kind of the things that if my son did, I would lose it. Went to Florida on spring break and never came home. I was like, I'm just going to stay. Um, and I, I had an aunt that lived there. So I just kind of 
started working with her. She had a furniture store. I was like driving a 15 foot box truck. I was just doing whatever, but I was honestly just happy that I didn't have a rigorous dance schedule and I could be on the beach and I was just really enjoying life. Uh, I actually did child modeling when I was young and I just didn't really like it because my schedule was always so full with dance. And I thought, here's another thing that's going to take me away from my friends. But now that I was 18, I was like, you know what? Modeling like might be my freedom ticket. (laughs) Maybe I could, you know, do this modeling thing and live like a really great quality of life because I wouldn't have to like work as much. So I started modeling in South Beach and um, things went great. I booked Abercrombie. It was like one of my first jobs. And then things just kind of started taking off. But I had such a hard time with the industry. You know, I went to New York and there, especially back then, was so not okay. (laughs) Like So not okay. You know, I was going to nightclubs, you know, with the agency. I was 18. You know, I was going to nightclubs. There was, you know, I was doing, you know, go sees, going to random older gentlemen's houses, like all over the, you know, New York, like just showing up and doing like Polaroids. I mean, it was just not, everyone was very creepy. I didn't like it. And I quit. And it was like right after my Abercrombie, everything took off. I was on hold for like, Vogue and Guess and like Sports Illustrated was interested. And I walked away from everything. I said, I can't do this. I hate this industry. Uh, I don't care about anything. Like, I don't want to do it. Um, and I took like a year off. And then um, I ended up moving to California. And then with my tail between my legs, I kind of restarted modeling and I had to start all over again. I missed my window of opportunity, basically. And I didn't really start loving modeling, and I'm sure Asha can relate, until the yoga world allowed me to actually use my talent and modeling. Like the modeling thing, like just judging me on how I'm looking, like holding something and, okay, getting paid to do this. But like if I could do Scorpion or like I could do some like cool stuff, like I was like, this is so cool. Like one of my favorite campaigns was for like Under Armour and it was like this women empowering, like, you know, they had just launched their yoga uh, line. And I was like, this is like, I could do this forever. Like this, that was my favorite thing. That's when I started really loving the modeling world when it went beyond just, you know, the vein. Yeah. (laughs) Stand, you know, that's, I can totally relate to that. Like I had always liked runway because I was like, it's movement based. It's like energy and kind of, a sh- I mean, you're not, you're just walking, but like the song and the outfit and everything, I was like, I feel like I can like play a part, you know, and dance kind of while I'm doing my runway work. But the rest of it, I was like, I just can't figure out like print modeling. And then it was literally, I think when I booked Aloe for the first time um, for one of their campaigns, you had done the one right before me. And yeah. um, they reached out. They're like, we have, we work with all these yogis you know, who are amazing, but we're trying to find some models who actually do yoga, like actually do like, like this girl, Jessie, like, can you do yoga like her? I'm like, wait, I've been doing yoga for like, you know, eight years and no one ever, no, none of my agents ever asked about yoga. I'm like, I can use this. I'm like, for sure. I remember like I met them in like the lobby of the agency and was just on the floor, like doing all my (laughs) yoga and they're like, okay, perfect. Let's go. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it was something I was proud to share because, you know, I hate to say it, but I modeled for a lot of companies that I don't like necessarily align with who I am. I mean, I think that I was trying to explain that to my son now because he's 17. I'm like, and he's modeling. And I was like, you don't understand. Like as an influencer, you get to choose who you want to advertise. Like when I was your age, I didn't have a choice. They were like, Jesse, you booked McDonald's. Like this is what you're doing. You know, it wasn't like I had a choice. Like now it's like, I only share products and things that I authentically love and actually use. Um, so that's the beauty of it now. But I think another part of it, like talking about being a mom and pregnancy is I did model my entire pregnancy and we started working together after I had him. That also for me, I mean, I do owe modeling so much because it allowed me the financial ability to be a single mother. I mean, I was a single mother. Like I, I never received money. I never had, you know, there was nothing like coming in from the other side. And I also got to be with my son. Like I only worked like once a week and I would go on castings and I would bring him with me. I did start loving it during that time too. Cause I was just so grateful that I didn't have a nine to five and that I could be with him, you know? Well, I love how everything in your life too sounds like it, it either has to be, or you have a deep desire and will to make the things that you work on or a part of just very intentional and very aligned with your inner beliefs, your spirituality and your energy. It's just like a very powerful thing. And I, I mean, I know our listeners can't see you, but it literally comes off of you as you're speaking about your experiences. Your like birth story and everything is so incredible too. Like I have so much respect for women who are able to have an unmedicated birth. How, like what big ways do you, I mean, there's so many ways I feel like when you become a mother that you transform but there are, are there any like specific ways that you just saw yourself differently before and after having Kaleo? I say I came into my own when I became a mother and I like make every, all everybody around me like want to be a mom. <laughs> like I have so many friends who are like, I became a mom because you just made it so fun, you know, but I tell people I didn't, I didn't like necessarily want to have kids. Like it wasn't like, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, I can't wait to be a mom. Like, that wasn't me. I wasn't like, it wasn't really on my mind. I wasn't really thinking about it. So it, I was shocked that how I took to being a mother, like my motherly instinct just like tapped in and my, my life just made sense. Like prior to being a mom, I don't want to, I, I don't want to say this was my experience and this is not for everybody, but looking back, I feel like my life was a little shallow <laughs> where like my biggest worries were very minuscule and, and ha being a mom, like I just wanted to be a better human being. You know, he was my driving force, like for everything, he is my driving force, like everything that I do. He just makes me want to be a better person and motivates me and, and really gives me purpose. Would you say that your son was one of the 
big inspirations for developing the golden secrets as you did because you did mention that before a certain point you didn't necessarily want to share what you felt was your signature scent and a signature part of you so was that part of it I think the driving force for the whole golden secrets and how Kaleo is connected to that is I have a lot of friends in my life that don't necessarily need to birth things into reality because they're very stable in their life. They have financial security. They are happily married. They don't have to like worry about um, bringing in income. So the golden secrets and Kalea, they were my motivation. Of course, like I was thinking I'm, I'm, you know, phasing out of this whole modeling, modeling thing, especially because girls like Asha were coming in that could still do the scorpion and stuff. And I was like, I, you know, I'm going to these auditions for yoga companies and I'm like doing scorpion with like 20 year olds. And I'm like, what am I doing? I think I literally called, I think we had the same agent at this time. I called like Linda and I was like, I think I'm retiring. (laughs) I I don't think I want to do this anymore. I was like, this is like, this is ridiculous. Um, so I knew that I had to like do something else. And had I just like had the financial security, I don't know if I would have gone through all the work that it's take to birth this into reality. So, um, you know, wanting to give Cleo a really good life, then yeah, that, that was definitely connected. I think there's so much power behind that. And it's like, even regardless of what stage you are in, in life, setting that, that reason for why you're doing something is, can be so, I mean, if you don't have that, you won't put things into place to work hard as, as hard as it takes to create a business like the golden secrets, but having that vision of, you know, this is, I want to build something that's sustainable for me and my growing family. Like there's nothing more powerful than that. And I think people are capable of doing that, even if they are secure. But I think it does take so much work to like build a company from the ground up that you really need some like, oh, (laughs) because there's some days where you're like, I just want to give up. But when you don't have the opportunity to give up, you dig deep and you figure it out and you make it work. How has it been, um, you know, because you were a single mother for a long time and now you're you're married. You're in this beautiful relationship with your Viking man, Devin, right? Um, how has it been like transitioning from being, you know, a single parent, the sole provider for your little family um, to embracing a new partner and um, that kind of integration? Oh, wow. It's been the whole thing has been so incredible and so amazing. I think the first thing that I think of and like the people that are close in my life is I'm able to be feminine again. And I'm able to be like the fairy person that I was as a kid because my husband is so grounded and rooted and logical and trustworthy that I can finally, for the first time in my, li- in my life, relax you know, and if I can give advice to anyone, like wait to find a partner that allows you to be who you authentically are and balances you out like that. He's 
Because I had to be, you know, I had to be the dad and the mom and I had to be the provider and I had to do all these things. And you become very masculine. You hold yourself differently. You become more rooted. You become more, you know, you have to. And I noticed that a few months into us dating, I mean, I knew he was the one, but I, I was just kind of flowing a little bit more. And it's just such a relief. I mean, him and my son have the best relationship he was also uh, a stepson. Um, so he like was, he noticed, he did things like when I introduced them that I wouldn't even think of, you know, he was so aware of how Kaleo might take him, you know, he's like, well, he's a teenager. He might be protective over you. You know, I think, you know, he was just, he's so, um, I, I always tell him like, you're so spiritually enlightened, but his parents are like, his dad is literally enlightened. Like he grew up in a very enlightened environment. So it's been amazing. It's, it's been so nice to, to have him take on like literally half, like he's taken on, you know, he's, he considers Kaleo his son for sure. That's like such a beautiful, I mean, that just feels like destiny that he had, to have had that experience already with a stepfather and to know exactly what to bring to the table to you and to Kalea, it's just like what could be more fated than that. And your background with your mom being a single, you know, single mother and you being a single mother until you, I mean, it's all just so beautiful. It's like a. It really is. It took a long time though. I, I didn't realize how valuable this was, but I shared, I share a lot about, you know, my personal life on Instagram, I remember when I said something about, you know, finding the love of my life at 39. I found the love of my life at 39. So like, I like to let women know that like, there is hope. <laughs> you know, it's okay. I mean, I dated, it's not like I was single that whole time, but I didn't find my, my, my match, you know, until I was 39. Well, and I love the way you talk about your partnership too, and the way that you as a single mother had to carry these two very different types of energies. And I think, um, you know, in a lot of ways, a lot of people do that in their daily lives. So when you have a partner who really is like a great stable partner, that's exactly what they do. They take the burden off. They don't take away the essential parts of you, but they take the burden off so that you can really breathe and just be yourself and flow into that state of who you are at rest. So, I mean, I just, I love that. And what a beautiful relationship that, you know, he's created with your son. It's like, and you, and sometimes the hard thing is that you don't really know it until you find it, but the, like, uh, I can breathe, like I can just be me, you know, instead of being something that I think I need to be for someone. We really want to prioritize just like just the realness of being women, you know, um, whether it's talking about early on with our period starting, whatever, the experience of becoming a mom, birth, but also pregnancy loss, you know, and how, how real it is. Um, can, are you comfortable talking? Yeah, about yeah, that? yeah. No, I think, you know, that's, that's my saving grace is I had several girlfriends share their experience with me. So when it happened to me, I was able to draw from their strength. And I remembered how I viewed them in so much love and, and light and, and forgiveness. Like 
like going, what do you mean? Like, that's not your fault. Like, it's just how it's like, it's just not the right timing. Because they shared with me, I was able to handle uh, the pregnancy losses. I've had two in the last year um, with so much more grace. And so once I felt comfortable, I knew I was going to share. I was like, this needs to be talked about. Like when you read the statistics and how common it is and um, how it's not talked about. And there's still like this stigma. It needs to be talked about and almost as common as, you know, getting pregnant. Like it's just like part of it. Like it's almost like getting your period. Like I even see a lot of people on this spiritual realm trying to do this work and I, and I don't like it. I see this thing of going, you just need to um, love yourself more, or you just need to heal the feminine divine from your grandparents, your mother. To me, that is again, taking responsibility that it's your fault. And I don't like any of that. Sometimes you just have a bad egg. <laughs> And it's not the right time. And you just have to trust the process. For me, like, because I'm 42, it's like the statistics are like one in seven eggs are good, I think is the statistic. So um, when when my husband and I decided we were going to start trying, um, I haven't shared this publicly yet. So this is like, this is, this is the scoop right here. Um, we were in the middle of quarantine. And we were outside having our coffee and he goes, I think we should start trying. And I was like, trying what? And he's like, you're pregnant. And I was like, what? Really? <laughs> and you guys remember like in the middle of quarantine, it was just such a weird vibe. Like you, you were doing, I don't know. It was just like this weird energy. And I was like, well, we're just home all the time anyways. We might as well. And I had thought that it was going to take me like a year because I do have a 17 year old and a lot of my friends had children after me, I would say more than half of them had a hard time getting pregnant or, you know, pregnancy loss or, you know, tried for a long time. So in my head with my age and everything, I thought it's going to take forever. And we got pregnant on the second try. I was shocked. So I thought, Oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. You know, but what I didn't know, what I wasn't educated on is the egg quality. And, you know, my body miscarried. But the blessing is, it's like the body is so amazing. I didn't have to have any intervention. You know, once I knew that my body was miscarrying, I allowed it to flow and I let it go and I released and I, you know, it was very gentle on myself. And it was doing exactly what it was supposed to do because there was something wrong, you know? And, and I think when you look at it in that way, it's a little bit easier um, to deal with. And, I, and I'm not gonna lie, I mean, the first time Devin and I laid in bed for three days and we allowed ourselves to grieve. And then it was like, we just pulled up our bootstraps and we're like, okay, this is what we're doing. Like, and we continue to live our life. We're big believers in, you know, the vibration you put out into the world is what you get back. So we allowed ourselves to process and grieve and cry and like experience it. Like, I think that is so important to allow your body, however long that takes to go through that process. 
And then, and then we tried, we actually waited uh, quite some time and then tried and got pregnant again right away, which to me is a victory. Like I'm still looking at it as a victory. You know, it's like I'm 42 and I'm able to get pregnant. I just have to get the right egg. <laughs> you know, I have a good amount of eggs. You know, I've done all the tests and everything else is good. So I just have to get that good egg, you know. Yeah. My mom had my baby brother at 43 and it was perfect and it was planned. Um, he's 16 years younger than me and he just got his first job at In-N-Out. It's the cutest so thing ever. Cute. I love, I love hearing stories like that. And that's exactly what I mean. When women share, when women share, it's like, it's just, we just feel more connected. And then it gives me hope. I swear, every time I tell my story, somebody says, oh, I know someone that had a baby at 43. And, you know, it's just like, oh, I love Absolutely. that. See, I love that you share openly your story about miscarrying and trying. Um, my husband and I actually got pregnant earlier this year. Well, late last year, and it wasn't planned. And we went through a miscarriage. And like you, I drew a lot of strength. Um from friends who had been through the same thing. But you definitely have to give your body the grace to feel it. I mean, Asha was there for me and was a, a very powerful reminder of, you know, giving yourself the grace, not blaming yourself because it's a very natural thing to do. And, um, you know, you allow yourself to go through that natural grieving process because it is a loss and that's part of processing it. And you have to, like with all things in life, really allow yourself to experience the low lows so that when the high highs come, they're really great. That's the whole part of the human experience is the duality of it all, you know. And I'm so sorry for your loss, but just hearing that, it's like, see, we're in the same tribe. Like, there's so many of us in this tribe. And I remember the first time it happened to me. I'm like, oh, I didn't like, I didn't think this was part of my story. Like I've been through enough. Like I remember going, I've, I got enough stories. Like I don't need this experience too, you know, but like, maybe I do. Maybe I'm a catalyst to like help other women not feel so alone. And, you know, that's, that's my driving force with, like we talked in the beginning, like if something challenging in my life is going to happen, I'm going to share how I'm going to get through it and hopefully it will inspire somebody else, you know, to better able to go through their life, you know. Uh, you know, I this could be a totally weird analogy, but I keep just thinking of your beautiful little essential oils, you know, scent and initially thinking like, but this is my thing, you know, and like maybe I shouldn't share it and then realizing that like, you know, this helps me so much. Like, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I share it? You know? And I think that in so many of, ironically, our trials, you know, that aren't as beautiful and nice smelling as like our essential oils might be, our trials can sometimes feel like this is my thing. You know, unfortunately, this is my thing, but the beauty in it and what keeps us like moving and really like, I mean, I feel like adds so much significance hearing both of your stories and experiences. Like they're so unique, each different story and trial is so unique, but 
to be able to share them, it's like, okay, well, then we can all kind of bear it together. Yeah. And then it becomes something kind of really beautiful. I do have to say, I've been working on this thing lately, not to, I noticed it a couple of years ago, not to attach myself to my disease of rheumatoid arthritis, not to attach myself to challenges. I don't even like to say I am resilient anymore because I feel like then life gives me things to prove to myself that I'm resilient. <laughs> you know, Dr. Zach Bush uh, said something about that with his wife. Like, like you're in the medical field. Like, there's people. Like, you, what you end up going into is like what you are good at. Like, it's really interesting. Like, if you're a natural, like if you're a little healer, then you're going to go into the medical. You like taking care of people. And there's this whole thing of like, it's so interesting how what you say, life kind of brings back to you. So I don't want to attach, I keep telling the universe, like, I'm good. I've had my lessons. <laughs> like, I don't need any more lessons. I can have all grace and ease from here on out. I will create so much light through grace and ease. I don't need any more challenges. So, well. As much as I feel like we could just like have a girl's night and just chat all night, like rake out a little wine and hang out, um, I guess we should kind of transition towards um, the, the end of our episode. But before we go into like our fast five and everything, um, we are a podcast and organization about confidence and communication. Um, so I'd love to hear any of like your your best practices for being a good communicator when you're trying, when you're just trying to connect with your, your community, with the people that help you with your business? I think just being honest, you know, and, and instead of trying to tell people what they want to hear, <laughs> what you think that they want to hear, just really being honest and clear and, you know, having clarity before you even speak. Um, and, and the, you know, your tone and the way that you are, you know, is everything like you can get away with a lot of people, I think, are afraid of hurting someone's feelings or not saying the right thing. But when you speak from your heart in an authentic way, it gets received. Where where do you draw um, confidence from or what does confidence mean to you? right now? that's interesting. I'm going to go back to all the stuff I've been through. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've done a lot and I've proved to myself over and over that, you know, I can do things and I could do hard things and I'm going to be okay and All right. Well, maybe we'll go ahead and um, transition into it. We do like a fast five questions towards the end. Um, Keish, you want to start? Sure. Okay. Dance party or karaoke? Dance party. What's the best and what's the hardest part? about being a mama? Ooh, the best is like, I've just never experienced love like I have until I was a mom. But the worst is that your heart is like living outside of your body for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> You're like double vulnerability. <laughs> okay. Favorite yoga pose or stretch? Ooh, that has definitely transitioned. I would say... My, my favorite yoga pose is warrior two. It's just such a solid foundational pose. And if you stay in it long enough, 
you can learn so many lessons. What is one health and wellness fact that everyone needs to know? That your, what your body needs is different than what anybody else's needs. Like you have to be your own best doctor and figure out what works for you intuitively, but also like we talked about before, like get some blood work done every six months, (laughs) like check out your levels, like do, you know. Favorite affirmation or ritual? Well, my affirmation right now is I allow grace and ease in my life. And my favorite ritual is probably sunbathing. (laughs) I just love like going outside in the morning and drinking my coffee in the sun. It just feels so good. We always like to close with the same question, but looking back on your teen self, what's one attribute that you had then, but you didn't necessarily see the value in, um, but you appreciate so much more now that you're an adult? I tell this to my son, like anything that makes you feel awkward and weird. Like I, you know, hated my nose. I hated my smile. You know, I critiqued everything about myself and now I realize that those are my superpowers. And I, and, and that's, I think, you know, what I encourage, especially young women, like find that one thing that you probably don't like, and that makes you weird and unusual and different and then embrace it because it is your superpower if you allow it to be. Yes. Mic drop. I love. Thank you so much, Jesse. This has been such a treat. Your energy is just so infectious and so beautiful and light. And there's so much grace and ease about you. We would love to share um, like where people can find you, what you're working on right now, anything that you'd like to promote. Um, well, the goldensecrets.com is my website. And then on Instagram, Jesse Golden is where I share most commonly. I'm on all the things, even TikTok, guys. I started that during quarantine. And, and then at the Golden Secrets Instagram. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much for spending the evening with us. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?